Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. I'm Ron Skelton, your host, and today I'm here with uh, Lowell Rickliffs. Lowell is the CEO and founder of Traction Advising, who specializes in helping B2B software as a service companies. Man, thank you for being on the show today. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate being here. Yeah. And if you've watched the show, you know what my first question is going to be. I, I only have one canned question, and that's just origin story. Kind of, can you share with us? Uh, I jokingly say, you know, you were born, now you're ended up on a mergers and acquisitions podcast. Can you kind of fill in the gap in between? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I was an uh, electrical engineer, computer science long ago, uh, went down the technical sales route, Fortune 500 company, uh, over 15 years, was a global vice president. Uh, participated in integrating some some acquisitions. And it was a part of three three startups helped to scale one from a million to ten million as their chief revenue officer. Another one from ten to one hundred twenty million as a chief operating officer, and then was CEO of a, of a fintech company. Um, all three had exits, and along the way, I acquired about a dozen companies and was just not super impressed with the um, the bankers. Uh, all smart people, but not good salespeople. And so when it came time to sell a company with co-founded, I just thought I had an enterprise selling background, thought run a classic enterprise selling process to sell it. It was effective. One of our investors asked for help on another project and I helped with that and open traction seven years ago. Um, a little bit, but, and, and yeah, a lot of reasons why, but I just, I think selling technology companies, it's 80% selling and positioning. It's 20% finance. Some companies are, are very complex financial instruments. You know, they've got assets, they've got work in progress, they've got intercompany transfer, they've got foreign exchange, they've got, you know, it's a very complicated financial instrument. And in that case, you want someone that's primarily a banker that can run the financials to make sure that it's, it's correct. But software is relatively simple financially, but can be complicated uh, technology-wise. In theory, it's infinitely scalable. And at scale, a buyer may pay you know, two, three, four times what they might, if they don't understand what that your company might look like as a, in, as a part of um, the, the acquirer. So, yeah. So that. So one of the things is uh, I was telling you right before the show, I have a background in technology, but uh, currently I'm kind of looking at the old brick and mortar boarding companies. And one of the reasons is, is for a lot of the software companies, specifically one of the areas you specialize in, you know, which is B2B software as a service, as much as I love the idea, because I'm a recurring revenue guy, I'm a, I have a, you know, my, my biggest investment is real estate, right? So I, I do that because the recurring yeah. revenue. Yeah. So I right. love the idea of it. It's the valuations for the last few years for the, for most SaaS companies are just insane in my world. So uh, are they still like that? What does that look like right now? Or 
It's a really good question. And I like your analogy to real estate because it is recurring revenue. I mean, that's why people will pay multiples of revenue instead of multiples of EBITDA is because it's a, it's in theory, it's a continuous revenue stream and they can look at the metrics looking back to find out how reliable it is. And, and they'll pay for uh, growth and retention. I mean, that's, that's the value uh, of those companies. You know, we, <clears throat> we focus on companies with typically five to, to 25 million in ARR. So they tend to be smaller SaaS companies. The multiples have been in the five to 12 range. And honestly, the vast majority are in the, the smaller ones are in the, in the four to six range. They haven't gotten a lot higher in the last five years. And so they're not getting compressed that much now. What you did see is companies north of 100 million, or you just saw some crazy investment valuations where you saw you know, 20, 40, 60, 100x valuations, some things that just made your, your head spin. And there was just more money than there were opportunities. So people, they, you know, uh, private equity has to put the money to work. They can't just sit on the sidelines. Um, so after losing out on a lot of deals, sitting on the sidelines for a year or two, you saw some kind of desperate things going on. Now, the market has kind of flattened. You know, the publicly traded companies have come down in their valuations. Um, I think private equity is being much more careful about where they invest. Some of the companies they invested in, they're, they're looking, they're trying to get them closer to, to cash flow. But I'd say it's back to probably where it should be. I, I, I mean, it was, it was higher than it should be. And those that exited at that point, I think many benefited from that. But I think what you see today is, is more typical of where it's been for the long term and probably aligns most correctly with where the value of those companies are, in my personal opinion. Not necessarily so if you're playing seven times multiple of a <laughs> revenue, right? Well, and depending on when you invest, if you're, you know, uh, pre-revenue, you know, it can be <clears throat> it can be five to 10 to 15 years, even if you have a successful outcome on paper, mm -hmm. right? Even if you've got a unicorn, um, you know, your investment could be worth worth a lot on paper, but it's not liquid. So you could be 15 years out and it looks great on your spreadsheet, but you can't spend that money. So it's a good, that can be a good problem to have, although maybe not when the valuations drop, but, uh, yeah. but it's true. Let's talk yeah. about, let's talk about what's going on in the industry right now. I mean, uh, a lot of people are concerned about like the economy and how that's impacting it. Do you see, what do you see going on right now in the space? I think it depends. There's, there's still a lot of money that that's out there. You know, I, I like to tell the story, you know, you go back to 2002 and Enron did some bad things. And so Congress passed Sarbanes-Oxley to try to hold people accountable and which I think was a good thing, but it added a cost to going public of about a million dollars a year. Some would say $2 million a year. So now it made it harder for a 10 million revenue company to go public because it might wipe out their, their profitability. So in-step private equity, and they had a longer term approach than quarter to quarter. And they had returns of 30 to 40% internal rates of return. So just put that in perspective, a $100 million fund would return 1.6 billion 10 years later. Well, if you were an investor in that fund, what would you do with your share of your 1.6 billion? You throw it back into another fund. And all of a sudden the 1.6, you know, turns into, I can't do the math in my head, turns into 25 billion. So you've seen that happen over and over again over the last 20 years. The funds have gotten much, much larger. Uh, there's there's close to five tr trillion dollars now in private equity. It represents 20 percent of the value of the New York Stock Exchange. There's a massive amount of money out there that that's trying to find a home, and that's still the case. So you there there's still aggressive 
they're being a little bit more cautious right now, a little bit more patient. There's a little bit more scrutiny um, from higher up before they, they make investments. But I, I think as an investor over time, you've seen, I think, many of the most successful companies uh, come right after some sort of a, a, a bad event. So, you know, as as often happens, you know, strategic companies, if their stock price is down, it doesn't mean that they're not interested in, in buying companies. But if their performance is down, that's what really matters. If their performance is down, they're, they definitely are, are more cautious about spending money to buy companies. They want to preserve it to, to kind of focus on their core business. Uh, private equity, you know, they, they're typically looking for companies with 10 million or more in recurring revenue for a platform. And then they'll do add-ons of, you know, the, the, the three, five, seven million dollar companies. And that's a lot of the companies that we work with are, are add-ons. So a lot of the platform companies are still looking for add-ons. Add-ons don't get the, the sky-high multiples that, that would capture the headlines. And that's still, you know, if, if it's a good fit, um, those platforms need to grow. And acquisition is a part of that core strategy. We see a healthy appetite out there still for that if it's the right fit. And um, so that's, that, that's going pretty well. You know, some of the, the, the thesis will change that they make platform investments in, right? When you saw COVID kick in, uh, you saw a lot of, lot of the uh, investors shift their focus, you know, a lot of them focus to, you know, logistics for small e-commerce retailers, right? Because everyone went online to buy things and shipping was a big part of that. Uh, so there are a lot of things that, that shift like that. You know, the concern about consumer spending is one of the things that we have seen, uh, you know, particularly on the retail side, you know, businesses that are on the retail side, you know, I, they don't believe that's going to be a big growth industry over the next two to three years, right? So they're focus, focusing on things uh, that will. So retail tech is a is a hot space for one example. But if you are uh, actually in the retail, selling retail, um, it, it might be less interesting. So it, you, you see a shift in the focus. But like I say, the, the market is still strong. I, I think it was probably record strength in the in the history of the world the past few years. But it's it's still very, very strong. Um, just not, you know, you kind of hit the high water mark and we've kind of come off that, but it's not gloom and doom on the acquisition side. I can tell you that at least at this point it continues to evolve. Awesome. So you mentioned a couple of times in their right fit, you know, the phrase right for it fit. What would you, what are the elements of being the right fit as a software, a B2B software as a service company? Like if you're wanting to appeal, you know, you're, you're starting to look at maybe a, an exit or something and you're wanting to appeal to these private equity or institutional buyers kind of, what are the elements of a, of a good fit? Well, uh, I will tell you right now, this kind of ties into the last question. One of the things companies that are burning cash back, I got an email this morning from a company that passed and his, his comment really hit home is he said, we don't want to pay for a company that adds to our burn. So burning cash right now is you know, over, one of the things I run across a lot is companies will anecdotally see companies that are you know burning cash. I mean, look at look at Uber, right? They still burn cash and look at their sky high valuation, um, and they they so they don't think it matters. It it does matter. Um, even just being break even is very different than burning cash. People don't want to buy a company and then have to continue investing in it. They want to buy it and not have to invest in it, and ideally believe that it's going to start generating cash. But they don't want to pick up a, a potential liability. You know. What you should look at, what, what I found, and when I was the CEO of a, of a company, I, I looked at companies in our space. I looked at our customers. I looked at our competitors. 
And I assume that those would be uh, the acquirers. And the reality is oftentimes the acquirer will be companies that you haven't thought about before, but they sell to the same client base. You, know, you may have 500 clients and you may do 5 million in revenue, uh, but, but some companies out there, you know, let's say you're, it's HR tech, right? And you're selling into the enterprise and in HR. Uh, well, they, you, it may be a different solution that they sell, but it's the same buyer and they've got 50,000 customers. So in many ways, it's almost just like a marketing campaign to their existing client base where they can cross sell. And, and even with 10% adoption, they go from, you know, 10% of 50,000 is 5,000. You now have 10 times the revenue that, that you have currently. So oftentimes you acquire, it's easy for them to justify the acquisition, not just on your, your existing numbers, but what your numbers would look like at scale in their company. So so that, that's one part of it. Then you got to look at the technology. Is it scalable? Is it current tech? Is there a lot of tech debt? You know, is this a 20-year-old uh, tech stack that you're running this thing on? Because then the, they may look at it and say, boy, this is a great fit. But if we have to rebuild it anyway, why don't we just build our own? Why would we buy it and, and rebuild it? Um, some of the core metrics they'll look at is uh, retention that we talked about, right? I mean, that's probably the most important thing. Um, I would argue if you've got 50% churn, you don't really have recurring revenue. You've, you're selling the equivalent of a two-year license because if you're 50% a year, 100% churn in two years. Um, so and they'll pay closer to normal shrink wrap software like prices, more in the, you know, the one to two X revenue price. Um, growth is another category that, that's really key. If you can get above you know, 40 to 50% continuous growth, you are far more valuable than um, if, you're, if you're flat. If you're flat, there are companies that will that may buy you, but they're going to be more value oriented. And, and typically what we'll see are companies in the 20 to 40 percent kind of linear growth. They're not the hockey stick growth. Um, and often I would argue if you are hockey stick exponential growth, 50 percent plus um, and it's a big enough market. Um, often I'll coach people. Why would you sell now? Yes, you'll get a high multiple now, but you're going to have a much higher baseline that the multiple will be applied to in a year, 18 months, two years. You know, your, your company could be two, four, eight times as valuable in a year or two. So those are some of the, some of the metrics. There are a few others as well, but I'll stop. That's cool. The, um, you know, the recurring revenue model is, you know, that's, that's something I, I look for everything. Like if I'm looking, I, I had a fascination at the beginning of the year, I was looking at a bunch of coffee roasting companies because I could go and do like the, you know, coffee in a box type of, you know, uh, subscription, you know, add subscription plans to them. Um, and I, I just, I had a couple of models where I've seen it work really well. And, you know, I've said this over and over again on the show probably, but, uh, it, what turned me off on that industry is the regulations and the international trade and stuff. There's some things that go on in the coffee industry that are just kind of shady, but, um, inside of the software as a service, what are some red flags that would be like, if it'd be hard for to, to basically get in your way if you're trying to sell? Well, I mean, one of the things is, is like realistic expectations, right? I mean, I, I've talked to some people and they're like, yeah, we've got 2 million revenue. And I said, well, what, you know, what, what are your valuation expectations? You know, they'll say, well, I'd, I'd take 50 million. And I'm just thinking, uh, you know, you, <laughs> so <would> you I. <laughs> might get it, but, but uh, you know, the odds of us getting that are, are, are low. So I, I, you know, one of the things I look at just realistic valuations. I, we kind of have a feel for, you know, there are the, the, the high performance buyers that, that will pay the eight to 10 X multiples. The vast majority are in the middle, the normal range, call it three to 
seven times revenue. Then you've got the value buyers, right? That, that buy companies that are, uh, um, but, but so kind of tied into that, probably the, the hardest thing to sell is declining revenue. Uh, one of the buyers once told me no one wants to catch a falling knife, right? They just, um, in, in, we have sold companies with declining revenue, but it's important to tell the story, understand why, and then be able to communicate clearly what, what the fix would be, right? And it might just be that um, the software company is really more of a feature. It's not a product. So that feature as a part of a larger product line uh, is, is sticky. It, it makes their product stickier and it's not standalone. You don't just, you don't discontinue using, or you may discontinue using a feature, but you still subscribe to the whole thing. Um, another thing I coach people on is get, get your financials um, correct. Um, you know, often, you know, companies when they're small, don't spend a lot, you know, they don't have a CFO and don't spend a lot. And, you know, it, it's, I've never seen it intentional, but, but sometimes the, the revenue and the, um, and the, and the costs weren't, weren't accounted for properly. So you just want to make sure that that's correct. So there aren't any big surprises in there. Cause you'll, you'll, work really hard to get to, you know, an indication of interest, a letter of intent. You don't want to get that far and sign it only to find out that uh, there's some significant errors in there that shift it, that, that one either gives the buyer leverage to, to retrade it and, and change the price or, or, or back out. Uh, so that, it, that's a big one. That goes a lot into the trust too. If when you start getting to due diligence and you start seeing things that are just like out of place and, you know, Sometimes, I mean, I've looked at a bunch, you know, the last couple of years. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether or not it was intentional or just poorly run. Right. Right. And, it, right. and it's like, OK, they either run this really bad or they're trying to hide this. And they, there's just a seed of doubt. Right. You try to give people the benefit of the doubt. OK, they probably just didn't do their books right. But that seed of doubt still there is like, what else? What else should I be looking for? Right. So it, that's exactly uh, right. It's like peeling back an onion. It's like, I mean, it's, I know when I was on the buying side where um, you'd talk to someone it'd make these claims and you'd say, wow, that's really interesting. But then you'd look at the data and the data doesn't support those claims. And, and almost and what I learned over time is if that for, if there's a disconnect on that first level, there are probably further disconnects as you dig deeper. Um, so, and, and likewise, if someone is, if what they tell you is consistent with what you see in the data and there tends to be a consistency. It, it, it builds trust. And then when, when normal things come up, you know, for example, one of the things that often comes up with software, you know, when it was, uh, you know, if you and I start up a company in a napkin and we're in coffee shops and we're writing code and trying to make it work, you know, we probably don't have IP assignment letters, right, in place and, and non-competes. Well, it's a big deal because a buyer often at the 11th hour is, is combing through those and says, you know, hey, I see Ron helped write the code for the first two years and now he's gone. I was like, well, yeah, but he, he's, he's a good guy. It's all fine. It's like, well, he needs to sign this. Well, one, if you left on bad terms or it's all normal, right? Those things happen, but, but it's important to, to track people down, try to get those signed if you can, ideally before they have leverage. If someone left on less than pleasant terms, realize that that could be a problem, right? So anyway, those are normal things that come up. Uh, you want to have a high level of trust and capital because all these things that you negotiate, right? You're going to negotiate how much cash at close versus an earn out. Um, you're talking about things about non-compete. There might be retention bonuses. There's going to be your title. There's going to be your cash comp. All these things are in negotiation, right? And as, when you negotiate, you, you start with a, like a, a, an account that's high. And every time they, they give up, you, you 
you know, you're at some point they're not going to give anymore. So you don't want to waste that on things that don't matter. Like, Oh, you know, I said we did 6 million last year. We actually did four and a half. Oops. Right. It's like you, you just lost a lot right there. Right. And you haven't even gotten to the, the other stuff. Yeah. And it's not, a lot of times it's not even the big things like in the brick and mortar company. Sometimes it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, the, you know, it's the ad backs, the things that uh, in the smaller world, like they're starting to add back. Um, I get the one that keeps coming to my mind is a, a little, a small company, but uh, they were doing you know, one and a half million doing car detailing and, um, you know, window tinting and on the surface, like, okay, that's kind of cool. And you start looking at it and like the owner's like, we well, you know I'd be willing to come back part time. And uh, the owner only added back in like 60,000 for his salary, which is a little low, even where, where he's located. And, um, you start talking to him. He's like, I'd be willing to come back part-time. And you start calling him, What's, what does part-time look like to you? He's, you know, 40 hours a week. Okay. How many hours are you working right now? You know, he's like 80, 90, you know, I was like, okay. You only added back one salary and you're doing two and a half jobs. So yeah. uh, there's yeah. a little bit of that going on in the software industry. I know it came from the software industry. There's no such thing as a 40 hour work week, at least, at least back in the day when I was there, you know, you're on call, you're writing code, you're there, you know, you, you got to get, especially in the startup world, you're, you're, you're there, 50, 60 hours a week if you're a slacker. And, uh, but I, is there, I, I guess it, once you get past that five to $10 million recurring revenue model, that, that, that things change. Um, one of the things that I would be like, I would be concerned with if I'm the acquirer is a lot of those companies are backed by VCs, angel investors, a lot of, I guess the cap table is what I'm looking for. Like where all the shares are, who owns what, uh, is is that a problem that you see regularly? Um, as far as like who your investors are, or just that the cap table's not correct? The cap table's not correct. It's just like it's you know the owner doesn't own as much as he thinks he used to own, or he thinks he owns because of the way he structured the deal. I think that's the biggest way you can mess up a small yeah. company. So people often, maybe usually, don't really understand how it's all going to flow through on the waterfall, right? Like really, you know, I know, and I know this just from experience when you're raising money and you've got these term sheets, all those legalese and, you know, and you say, well, what's, what is preferences? And they explain it. And you're, you know, sometimes you're like, yeah, maybe in that moment you understand it, but then you're like, whatever, I need money or this company's yeah. going to die. And so you sign it. And then when you're selling it, all of a sudden you really focus on that stuff and understand it. You know, like, well, who has, to, well, who, who, who can kill this deal? Like who has to vote to approve it? Right. Like That's, do the yeah. prefers have the sole right to approve or disapprove this deal and what's this look like to them and do they have preferences and, um, and how does this flow, you know, to them? It's a big deal. And then I would say probably the, the biggest um, issue that I see is that often you'll have a founder, they got a hundred percent of the company. They'll bring on a, a co-founder, right? Or a CTO. And they might give them 20%, but they give it as options, right? Which is, which is fine. But two things happen. One is on an exit, uh, the, neither side really factored in that those options had a strike price. So, so the founder gets the full value, whereas this, this new person, yeah, they get 20%, but they get 20% minus the strike price. So 20% could become 15% pretty quickly. And then there's the tax issue, right? With uh, QSBS, if you're, you know, qual uh, qualified business stock, you know, if it's held five years or uh, for the founder, it's tax-free, right? So if the company sells for, we'll make it easy, 10 million bucks, 
um, and he's got 80%, he gets $8 million like after tax. And the, the co-founder at 20%, with 2 million, that now goes to one and a half. Um, and it's treated as ordinary income. So he's got 35% tax on it. So, you know, 20, or, so two goes to one and a half is also less than one. And he's saying, I got 10, anyway. So I, and often it's, it's at that 11th hour when the waterfall is being calculated that both sides realize this isn't what they thought it would be. And, and that can be, that can get very emotional. Um, and it's, it, it's more common than not that people don't really understand the effect of that. So my, my advice to people right now would be if you're in a company, I don't care what role you're in and the company is performing well, like an I net as it'd be identified differently as, as there's consistent real revenue growth. Um, and then particularly if you think it's profitable, if the company will do well, you should exercise your options uh, because if you hold it for a year, and I'm not giving tax advice, this is just general friendly advice. Um, because then it, it, it should be treated as a capital gain. Now you should talk to your tax person to make sure that's really true, but, but that way you actually own shares more than a year and you'll get capital gains treatment, um, which should be less. It may not be the QSBS. Um, and then I, you know, with founders as well, if you're a co-founder, if you can give shares instead of options, it makes you more level on the exit than it is if, if, if there are options. Now, the, the downside is if you give shares and they have a value, it's treated as income. So you have to write a check, which may not feel good if in fact they're never worth anything, right? Because if you give someone a million dollars worth of stock and they have to write a $300,000 check to the IRS, that doesn't feel very good either. Um, but, but particularly early stage companies, if the strike price is low, um, the risk is relatively low, um, that's, that's, that's what I would do. Maybe I should do that rather than give tax advice. So, <laughs> right, and it, 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 that all continues to change. What are some of the biggest mes- misconceptions in the industry? Like I always say, there's a, everybody in this industry, in any industry, there's some rumors or like misconceived, you know, uh, notions out there in this space that just usually there's one or two that just bug you. <laughs> Is there anything out there that people think about software as a service or? acquisitions and mergers that just like you wish that didn't exist? <laughs> I think, um, I think the, the biggest misconception, and, and I went through this as well when I was on the buying side and, and, and bought the first company, you know, and the CEO said, Hey, we want to expand. And I found a company and I, I thought I, I negotiated a price and I thought it was done. Like we'd, you know, Hey, get someone to write a page of stuff. And, and, underestimated the amount of due diligence work that was required on both sides, um, the amount of effort that goes into a purchase agreement, the hundreds of items and points that get negotiated. Some are business, some are legal, um, but the amount of effort and complexity and risk. So once you get to a letter of intent, someone, I mean, often I'll see people saying, well, well, let's just, let's just do this and let's get an LOI. And they kind of feel like once an LOI is signed, the, like the deal's done, the rest of it is trivial. And what they don't realize is, is, um, is often sometimes the buyers that do the least amount of due diligence will give you an offer. And sometimes there's someone else that does a tremendous amount of due diligence. And they actually seem like a pain in the ass because they've done so much due diligence. And so sometimes the seller will say, well, these guys are really irritating. These guys are easy to work with. And I'll coach them and say, look, these other guys are just you know, they're, they're just being a little bit lazy. They haven't done any of the hard work yet. They're waiting until they're exclusive to do the hard work. 
and there's, there's a lot they don't know yet. They might not like your tech. They might not like you, right? Or they may not like your co-founder or they may not like your financials or they may not like, you know, your, the customer fit may not be there. There are any number of reasons they'll sign that LOI. That LOI doesn't mean anything. It's non-binding. Both parties can walk away for any reason or no reason. Um, so I really encourage people to try to do as much due diligence upfront before you sign the LOI, even though it's exhausting and it's hard and it's soul sucking and it's, it's just not fun stuff to do because then your eyes wide open. And if they still want to buy the company, once they've seen everything, um, it's much more likely to go through. So that's probably the biggest thing is, you know, sometimes people are like, well, let's just, let's just get the LOI signed. I want to get this in front of my board. And I'm, and I, I try to kind of coach patients that let's, let's have the tough conversations and I'll ask buyers, you know, we, 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 we close 90% of the deals that go to LOI. The industry standard is about 50%. So about half fall apart. And part of it is because we spend a lot of time up front. I'll talk to a buyer and I'll just say, this is great. They're super interested. looks like a great fit. I understand it. But if this were to fall apart, what would derail it, right? And they'll say, well, the only reason this would be derailed is if it X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay, let's dig into X, Y, and Z like tomorrow and make sure that, that you are as comfortable as possible that, that that's not going to happen before you get into LOI. And we've done that sometimes and they get into it and they're like, oh, wow, this is big monolithic code base. That's that's not gonna fly. My CTO says, we're not interested. It's like, oh, well, I'm glad we covered that now before we said no to everyone else and went to LOI. I've had a few of them where uh, like, I we start the process, you do the standard, like, hey, introductions. Yeah, I'm interested in your industry, your, uh, from what I can see from your website and other stuff, I'm kind of interested in what you got going on. Let's have a conversation. First call is always for me. Just build rapport with the owner. What's their origin story? Like, just I don't get into the numbers right off the bat because I kind of need to know who I'm working with and what the process is going to look like. But uh, some of the best ones I've seen where they were prepared, meaning as soon as we had the NDA signed, uh, there's two different levels of this. So the one of them just like overwhelmed me. The second I had the NDA sign, he says, great. Uh, I kind of did some research. I've listened to a few of your shows. I really like to, you know, I really like you to, to acquire my company. Here's the deal room. And after an NDA, he gave me like a hundred documents to dig through. <laughs> like for everything I would have on my checklist for due diligence. You can tell this guy has sold a business before. He had, yeah. he had a due diligence checklist on there and then you open it up and it basically had all these you know 30 items 40 items or whatever on there with a link to where I'd find them in the folder right wow. and the problem was is I didn't know the guy let you know deep you know that asked you any any set of books any set of financials any set of information on the company causes questions right you're looking at things like okay why did you do this what does this mean if you get that stuff before you have rapport with the guy it, 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 it mucks up the conversation, I think, a little bit because, you know, my next call with him is like, hey, I'm looking at this and this. And we weren't at the point where he felt comfortable. Answering. He gave me all the information, but you could tell, like, like there was a little bit of who are you to question me about this stuff. In, in, but I was just intrigued where the, the second guy that I, you know, the one I did like was we had a conversation. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the first set of data you're probably going to ask for. And then he gave me kind of a, a, he gave me a link to a folder and it was just the high level profit, you know, loss statement, balance sheet, just the stuff you'd normally glance at. And some marketing materials kind of like he had a little pr uh, presentation in there where like his vision of where we go. And he said, if you like what you see, schedule the second call. And then we, we, we had some questions about that. And then he, he had the rest of the stuff, right? But he introduced it to me as, as you know, whoever planned his, his, his folder out was it. 
the only thing stopping that that transaction was at the very end, like on the due diligence on legal due diligence, he had two pending issues, um, a patent lawsuit that I just didn't want to fund because I didn't, I don't know enough about it to know whether or not the guy was going to win or lose. And the other one was, um, I'm trying to think if I've ever named this company on my podcast, so I don't want to say this out loud. I don't think I have. So the other one was a human resources uh, sexual harassment lawsuit that was going on in the company currently with the formal VPs gone, but they still dealing with this, right? The, the lady was suing the company, not the VP that left, and uh, just didn't want to step into the mess. And I was like, part of me is like, you should have shared that at the beginning, but I guess you wouldn't. Yeah. But uh, the, my whole point is, is that like, the amount of data and when you get it is it's it's part of a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation between you and, and the stuff. And I, I guess if I was a big institutional buyer, I'd have just loved having the big data dump. Here's the deal room. Go through it. And if you're still interested, give us a call. Um, is that I haven't. That's the only one I've ever seen that did that. As a matter of fact, it's the only there's only two or three companies out of 230, 240 that ever been that well prepared. Right. Mm. Um you know, that's that said, we were approaching companies that were not listed, right? We're we were going directly to companies, yeah. and you know, uh, matter of fact, if you were kind of listed and brokered, we might look at you, but we didn't reach out to you. You had to hear about what we we're doing to reach out to us. <clears throat> yeah. So, is that normal? I mean, is a like I know that if you're you're an advisor, do you help build like a deal room for these guys and have all that stuff prepared so that when the seller uh, or the buyer asks for it, it's just sitting there? Or do you guys build it as you go because you don't know what they're going to ask for? So what we do is we will give an outline of a typical data room to entrepreneurs. And some will then spend the next 36 hours without sleeping to fill it. But we give it to them really so that there aren't any surprises. Like throw the easy stuff in there, the hard stuff. You know, some of it's important, some of it's not as important. But just so that, you know, like the IP assignment, the employee contracts, if, you know, if they're missing a third of them, it's like, well, okay, let's identify that early. Uh, but it's less that we'll share that that data room. It's more so that they can they can kind of get used to it. And then usually by the time we get to and, and then we'll do you know like their financials PL balance statement. Like we'll we'll build a financial model and we'll create a confidential information presentation, um, which is different. One thing we do is different than what typical bankers did. We used to bankers we used to get that dense two tone deck that that would just you know put you to sleep with, with the amount of detail. Um, and there was a lot of information in there, but, but and it, and it was almost like, if this looks interesting, call us. And I thought you, you could never sell your product that way, right? Your product, you had to talk about like, you know, what, 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 what issues is Ron struggling with? And let's, let's talk about those pain points and how we've helped other people that do what Ron does solve those things. And then people engage and they'll, they'll, they'll pay attention because you're talking about their problems. So, our decks are, are, are structured a little bit differently. So we'll start off with those two pieces of information that gives people most of what they need to understand the business, the history, the financials. And from there, we'll do like a, like a fireside chat. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's like getting married, right? I mean, buying a company is a pretty, is a relatively permanent thing. I guess it's permanent as getting married, right? A 50% divorce rate, but um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, and, and before you get married, you, you need to date first. You get to got to get to know each other. Like, do I even want to spend time with this person? Do we have things in common? And then you can dig deeper. So like on a first date, you wouldn't just roll out, you know, you know here's my Myers-Briggs and here's my financials and everything else. It, uh, sometimes it's just a little bit much. It could, could shock people. So well, I think they have that in there. 
in that deal room, they had the, all their executives, Myers Briggs, all the executives. Um, what's the one by Dan Sullivan uh, or Dan Sullivan promotes? Um, starts as a number in it, something thirty something or whatever. Anyway, they had personal evals and stuff of like you know, uh, basically psychological profiles of all their VPs and stuff in there. And uh, at my ner- first knee-jerk reaction on it was, you know, well, we're not even interested in this. Like anything that looks like that prepared, there's a little bit yeah. of, eh, but I started, when you start digging into it, you realize the guy was actually, who's the uh, guy who wrote Built to Sell, uh, John Warlow or something like that. They were a fan of his, one of his cl- uh, coaching clients, like they had built their business the entire time. It's one of the things he teaches is you create the deal room from day one and you run, you know, every month you're, you're fine. It just gets updated. So if anybody ever says, Hey, I'm interested you're like, Oh, fine. Here, here's everything you'd ever need. So they run it as if it's yeah. that. And yeah. that's what he had yeah. done. But my yeah. first need research in action is like, wait a second, they've polished this pony. So, so shiny that, you know, <laughs> uh, there's, you know, that's just, it raises a red flag. So it, it feels unnatural when it's that, sterile right so it is funny though one of um one of the companies we sold um earlier this year the the founder was pretty funny he said the next company i start he said first thing i'm going to do is build the data room (laughs) but he but but he said that because going back 12 years and trying to find everything and put it in there was was a lot of work and so he he decided i don't ever want to do that again and it's not hard to just kind of keep all that stuff systematically filed so that when you sell, it's, it's, it's just there. But the other part of that, I think that's important is, um, you know, there's the, the, the classic saying is like, know when to stop selling. At some point they say, yes, I want to buy you. At that point, don't just keep throwing stuff out there because you, you can screw it up by trying to oversell it. And I think due diligence is that way where, so, so an entrepreneur may have all that information as if they need it, but then, you know, you usually get a pretty intense spreadsheet from the buyer. Usually by the time you get to LOI, people think, how could there possibly be more due diligence? They've looked at everything. And it's like, no, trust me, just wait. Right. They think there's nothing else to know. Then they get it. They're like, are you kidding me? Like, I have to supply all this information. Um, but I think it's give them what they want. That's what they want. But don't give them but don't give them anything else. Give them everything they want. Don't hide anything. Um, and you had an interesting thing in there as well. If there have been lawsuits settled, whatever. There's a point, I think, in the middle where where you're serious, you want to go ahead, but you want to be, but but the, the capital is still pretty high on both sides and say, look, we just want you to know we had this employee leave. It was it was uncomfortable circumstances, but it was settled. Here's the document that says everything's fine. They've got no rights, blah, blah, blah. Um, and have that early enough where they can say, yeah, we'll review it. You know, we're OK with it. But if that comes up at the 11th hour, just before you sign, when just in general, both sides are kind of out of capital, deal fatigue setting in, emotions tend to be high. The, the reaction to new news later is much higher than it is earlier. So, so you don't want to do it at the front. You don't want to hide it until the end and say, oh, hey, by the way, you know, we're under current lawsuit by half of our employees. For, you know, that's, that's not going to go well anyway. But, so there's a point in the middle. And that's where part of this is a process. Part of it is a, is a science, but a lot of it is a bit of, of, of the art of what people want to know and, and when to know. And, you know, cause you'll do disclosure schedules, right? That's like the last thing you'll do before you sign is your attorney will, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have to disclose anything that's material and, and anything you disclose, they can't come back cause they'll hold back some money for indemnification. And if, if, if you disclose it, you've been, it's out in the open and they can't come back and say, Oh, you didn't tell us about that. Um, the, the risk you feel like, Oh, I'm, ex- I'm Am I, am I going to screw up the deal if I disclose these things? Anything you don't disclose, if in fact it ends up being material, 
and it's a problem later on, they can come back and, and, and take money away, away from you for that. So, so all of those things will come out and knowing when the right time is to have that conversation is important. And to their defense, I won't, I, I never brought up the name of the company and I won't just because they're good people. Um, but to their defense, it was in that deal room. Like I told you, they just like data dumped and said, here you go. It was in there. Yeah. I just didn't dig yeah. into that folder that said, you know, the legal due diligence folder. I figured I'd let my lawyer look at later and I should have at least glanced through it because I had already spent, you know, a week or two on calls with these guys. We weren't deep into this. Like they gave me so much stuff. This went pretty quick, but, uh, I was already a week into into calls and digging through, you know, probably 30, 40 hours of my time digging through all that deal room stuff and, you know, starting to already call people and build my team, like uh, who I, you know, who's going to be on, on that uh, before I stumbled across it. So uh, that said, I love the idea of the deal room. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, uh, that, that build the sale model where you build it from day one. But I love what you say. You give people what they're asking for because, um, you know, to be honest, there's a little bit of cry of desperation <laughs> that I felt when, you know, when he said, yeah, we're interested. Like, great. Here's everything you'd ever need to know. Like, wait a second. What's going yeah. on? Why do you want out this thing so bad? Like, well, you know, this. Like you know, the Myers-Briggs is a good example. If you throw those in there for the management team, if they met the team, they've gone out to dinner, they've mm -hmm. had management meetings in person and they're, they're happy with it. And you throw out Myers-Briggs or whatever psychological values you might get. They might look at that as a possibility. They could look at that and say, well, boy, that boy, ENTJ, that's a bad fit for CTO, right? Or whatever it might be, right? You, right. You're just creating more. It's like anytime. And, if you, and CEOs know this. If you've got a board, you know, you present the information that's important. But if you get carried away with lots of extra stuff, it just becomes more data points um, that, that may or may not be positive, right? So yeah. um, I think know what's important. Know what they want. Give them what they want everything they want and what they need, but yeah. don't just necessarily give them everything you can think of. Cause you might think it's really cool and they should know that. Um, but you also might be making claims that you later had to defend like, Oh, and we think we could do five times as much business next year because of this, this, and this. Like, well, if you can't really back that up, don't make those claims. I love the people who try to sell me on coulda, woulda, shoulda. Right. You know, or if use, all right. If you do this and then, you know, and they want their valuation built on the if use, if you do this or if you yeah. do that. And I'm like, nah, that's <laughs> not how this works. And I, I deal with no. a lot of smaller, you know, people pre what you would work with. Right. As a matter of fact, that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the guys that are pre that five million, you know, in recurring revenue because I want to grow them up and sell them. Like I want to grow them up, bring to them guy, yeah. a guy like you and we sell them to a and e you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I want to be able to pick up companies, you know, and a lot of people on this show that listen to the show, we're looking to pick up companies that within, I'd say, three at the earliest to five comfortable, maybe seven or eight years, they're ready to be sold to a PE, right? So we're picking up the stuff right underneath the radar, doing our thing, merging two or three of them together, and then making them appetizing to a, 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 an institutional buyer, a private equity, a family office or something to try to get that up, you know, that that um, there's a, what's the word I'm looking for? Arbitrage in uh, EBITDA too yeah. from different Absolutely. buyer classes. So we're, we're playing that arbitrage game a little bit. Um, so... Well, we're actually uh, running pretty close to. Uh, we're at like almost fifty minutes here. Let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, your specialty as, as a company, how people get a hold of you and stuff. So, what exactly are you looking for as far as your, what's your ideal client? I guess is the word I'm looking for. 
Our core business is our B2B SaaS companies with, you know, 5 million, um, five, like I say, five to 25, you know, the vast majority are probably in the, you know, five to 15 million is probably the, the, the sweet spot of recurring, recurring business, you know, ideally break even, mm-hmm. um, ideally some, some growth. Um, most of the companies we work with um, have a, a, a vertical niche, right. That they're, they're focused on and it's across the board. It, it, it's quite a few. I've got a business partner in London. So we, we kind of work 24 by seven and we've got a small team that we work with. But software in general, we, we are working on a couple of um, consumer-focused businesses as well. Um, in fact, one of the deals we did earlier this year, 60% of it was consumer. But, but the vast majority of what we do is, is B2B SaaS. So we don't, we, don't do, we don't actually don't do any brick and mortar. I, I, said, I guess we kind of did one. But, but generally speaking, you know, we're not selling pharmacies or um, anything else. You know, we don't, we don't, we're, we're just very, very specialized in SaaS. Software in particular, yeah. U.S. based or U.S. and Europe? It's not like you have a partner in London, right? So. U.S. and Europe. Yep, okay. yep. We've got an active. We've got three active mandates right now. One is based out of Europe. So when we, so both buyers and sellers, uh, we're we, we know the European buyers. They're looking to expand, and as well as U.S. and Asia as well. So well, that's really cool because we have a lot of European uh, listeners because I. I was trained by a, a, a European uh, mentor, so uh, then I oh, then I did okay. then I did a U.S. mentor. So I'm connected to different networks, but one of the biggest networks I'm connected to and work with is you know out of Europe. And I say that he I think he lives in Dubai right now on a yacht, but uh, his home base where he's from is <laughs> is uh, in uh, in the London there you know uh, area. So let's talk a little bit right. about uh, what do you guys bring to the table? Somebody calls you, they've, they've got, got a software company. What do you guys do for them and, and, and how do you help them? Yeah. So they're kind of three big phases initially. So we'll help to build the, the financial model. And we've got a model builder who's very, very good at that. Um, but the, uh, the SIP, the confidential information presentation, we'll, we'll do a lot of work to create a presentation that really highlights the, the strengths of, of the business um, in a, in, and the marketing side of it. And then we'll research buyers as well. So that's a big part of what we'll do is, We'll work. Uh, we create a Google Sheet, and we'll we'll reach out to you know we'll identify two to three hundred potential buyers. We'll look at how many employees they have. Are they how well are they capitalized? How much cash do they have? What rec- what recent acquisitions have they done? With a description of each of those, and we'll share that with the founder to go back and forth and get their their insight into those as well. We look at different categories of buyers. Like, is this someone that is this a competitive product? that would you know, increase their market share? Um, is this like in- incremental functionality on a product that they've got? Or is this actually just a different product that's sold into the same client base? You know, are you a US product and there's a European company that wants US market share? There are different reasons why someone might buy. So we'll create those segments and then we'll segment the buyers that way. And then we'll prioritize them, you know, one, two, three, where one are likely buyers, likely interested Two is looks like a good fit. Three is kind of a stretch, but still worth having the conversation. And then we'll um, we'll reach out to the different groups. We'll we'll have the initial conversation. We'll set up uh, we call a fireside chat with the founder. Um, we'll target indications of interest. So it's a one page. How much will you pay? What's the structure look like? Source of funds? What kind of internal approvals? So we do a really good job of vetting how likely are they. You know, we ask the question. Sometimes people. Will, 
we'll talk to founders a lot and they'll just say, ah, I got two offers. They say, well, who are you talking to? Well, it's Corp Dev. I say, if you talk to any product people, the CEO, now it's like, well, uh, what, what's the offer? You know, is there any approval? What's the funding? They're often just, um, it's a verbal offer, which really doesn't, doesn't carry a lot of weight. So then we'll, we, we do a lot of negotiation. Um, that's a big part of it, understanding who all the decision makers on the buyer side understand what, and we help, honestly, you know, people talk about companies are bought, not sold. Some people think that means that companies are like, like the buyer just decides they want to buy the company. We look at it as really walking the buyer through the buying process, understanding why do you want to buy, buy this company? What are you trying to accomplish? And we help them build the case to buy the company. And we can do that as former buyers. So even though we, we work for the seller, we work with the buyer to put together um, their, their business case and model approvals from the board, et cetera. Um, reassure them, eliminate the obstacles and the fears and the concerns that they have so that, that a deal gets done. So I can um, we do a lot of hold-handing. I can understand why you would hold the buyer's hand, especially if there's a board involved, because you're probably better equipped to prepare and why it's a good purchase for the board to understand than some M&A guy that the guy hired, you know, or whoever's in charge of acquiring or finding a growth strategy, a business development guy, you know, at the company. I think that you've just got more experience in that realm. Uh, even for myself, if some, if, if I was working for a company and, and we're doing an acquisition and you said, Hey, I can help you prepare a presentation to the board. I'd probably go, yeah, let's do that. Right. Uh, I've been looking at things like this for three or four years. You've got what? 20 guessing. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just, maybe and it's not, I'm no smarter than they are, but it's just, yeah. I've just, I've been through that and I've made, I've got the scars from a lot of the mistakes that we've made. And sometimes they'll put things in place and I'll say, I understand why, what you're trying to accomplish, but here's why day one or day 30 or day 90, that could work against you because you're going to want to try to accomplish this. You might put him there and he's focused on that. And often they're, they're, you know, they're receptive to that. I mean, often they just simply don't have as much experience. Oftentimes buyers, strategic buyers may have only acquired one company, right? They didn't go well or, or none, you know, or a few. Some, some have bought, you know, far more than, than I have. They're, they're far more experienced. But the extent that um, what I've seen is helpful, you know, I try to share that with them and to build trust and credibility on their side. Because I really do look at, one of the things I look at is the company most likely to follow through is a company where I understand as a former buyer companies why they should buy this company. This absolutely makes sense. You're, you're in this, you know, this, this is, you're missing this functionality this week's been. So that's who I lean in heavily with. And then I, I genuinely believe when I talk to them, it's like, this absolutely makes sense for you guys. I totally get this. And sometimes I'll even offer, you know, these are the seven reasons if I were in your shoes, based on what I understand, I don't want to tell them what to do. I mean, sometimes they don't, sometimes they don't want my advice. Um, but these are the seven reasons why, I would be interested in buying this company. This, these, these are the boxes it ticks for me because you got to put yourself in the head of the buyer. They're trying, they've got a career, whether it's the CEO, the, the CTO, the corp dev, they've got a career. They're trying to be successful. They want to be a hero, right? So how do you help them be successful and be a hero? If you buy this company and you increase it by three X, it can help you. You know, you're, you're under the gun to hit your revenue targets and your EBITDA targets. And this could contribute that much. And, and really if you're only 10% successful, um, at converting, it gives you this amount, you know, and 10% is pretty safe. So it's like a credible plan, you know, to, um, towards success. So we do a lot of that. I, I, I enjoy it. I, I genuinely love doing that kind of thing. And, um, and we work a lot of high quality, like super smart buyers as well. So, so it's fun. Awesome. Well, we're running out of time here. So let's make sure how, do, okay. how what's the best way people can 
reach out to you and get a hold of you? Two ways. Uh, one is through our, our website, um, you know, just www.tractionadvisingoneword.com. Um, you can reach out, out to us through there. Or LinkedIn is a great way to reach out. Um, and there's some different things on LinkedIn as well. But just feel free, just a little Rick Lifson. Um Never liked my name, my first and last name, hard to say, but it's very unique. There, there's no one else on LinkedIn. I'm not John Smith, so you, you'll find right. And I'll have those links in the show notes for everybody who's listening here. Well, I want to thank you for being here. And the last thing we always ask all of our guests is, what can myself or the audience do to help you out? I mean, is there any, what can we bring to the table to, to move your game forward? Uh, just, you know, if you've got an interesting company, um, even if you're not looking to sell now, you know, like I say, we're focused on software companies. I mean, just give us a shout. We're happy to have a conversation. And we're just curious people. So we're always curious to hear your story and what you're thinking about and, and kind of where, where you want to go. But we, we love it. We love to get to know people and companies, you know, a year, two years, three years before they decide to sell. We're totally fine with that. It's a intense process. We like to get to know people. We, we, we only do a few deals a year. Um, we're pretty selective about who we work with. We, you know, we want to make sure it's a good fit for us as well as for you uh, to go through it together. So feel free to reach out and happy to have a conversation. Or if you know someone that, that has questions, feel free to refer us. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show, and uh, we'll call that a wrap. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in napoleon hill's famous book think and grow rich with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.